I've introduced you to the concept of natural revelation. The whole notion of that is that beginning with things that we already know, that we already see, we can imagine that there is someone out there. Uh, those things are common human observations and they make us wonder about why we are the way we are, why we have the feelings we have, um, and, and they draw us out. Then we have special revelation that comes to us as scripture, and we find that the things that are already in us, in our hearts, in our consciousness, in our experience, are borne out by the truth of scripture when God tells us more specifically the things that we need to know. So the topics that we are considering are justice, um, beauty we looked at last week, and today we're going to look at freedom. Then after those, we will be looking at truth and at power, at spirituality, and finally at relationships. Today we're going to talk about freedom. What is freedom? And why is there a kite on my slide? So it reminds me to talk about something that we experienced many years ago now. Um, as Alicia, our daughter, says it was when um, the little boys weren't even born. She still calls them the little boys, even though they've outgrown her height-wise by several inches for many years. But back before the boys, the little boys were even here, um, Annabeth and I, along with Alicia and Brendan, had some holidays on the Oregon coast. The Oregon coast is a place of beauty. If you want to think back to what we talked about last week, um, th there, are, there are a few places that are as staggering in their beauty and grandeur as the Oregon coast. It's very rugged, and uh, it's right on the coast of the Pacific Ocean, and popping up in the shallow waters, or actually quite a ways into the waters of the ocean are these haystack islands. And they're kind of uncanny. Um, they, they look exactly like haystacks. Another thing that is, is remarkable about the Oregon coast is the wind that blows incessantly. It's always windy, at least any time we've been there, it has blown high winds. And so the summer that we were there um, having our holidays together, we had rented a, a little cabin on the Oregon coast and we bought a kite. We decided that we wanted to become kite flyers because of the wind and we saw that that was kind of a popular pastime. So we bought a kite. We still have that, that very same kite. Um, and we had a, a great deal of fun just trying to master the wind. And as, as the, the kite would soar up into the wind, um, it then began, it, it sort of seemed like it had a mind of its own because no matter where I would try to or we would try to guide the kite, it would either climb in the wind and soar or it would sometimes all of a sudden plummet into the ocean and then we had to drag it out. And as uh, you know, light as it was in the wind, so heavy it became as we dragged it through the water and once again tried to send it sailing into the sky. Why do I bring up kites? <clears throat> because the kite for me has become a bit of a, an object lesson on the notion of freedom. What is freedom? I began to think of the kite as having this mind of its own, and I imagined in my silliest imaginations the time that the kite decided to try to break free from its kite master. 
believing that if it could get free of this string that was tying it to the earth and tying it to this human that was trying to control its, its very destiny, that then the kite could just fly um, to wherever it would decide to fly and it would uh, perform its own gymnastics. Thank you very much. And I realized as I got caught in my imagination that if the kite would indeed think that way, it would be completely wrong. Because what would happen if you were to set the kite free from its string? Would it fly at will in the heavens? No, it would actually crash to the ground. Because the kite is held up by the string that holds it down. So I'm going to dwell on that a little bit today as we think about the notion of freedom and ask ourselves the question, what, what does it mean to be free? I think we might immediately come up with the, the definition that to be free is to be able to do what we want. No one would tell us what we could do, what we could not do. We could simply do what we want. Then if we were to become a bit more philosophical and a bit more principled, we might say, no, that, that wouldn't really be freedom. Perhaps in freedom there is something about um, not doing what we want, but doing what we should. And so then we might say, mm, that's a little deeper, that's a little more profound. But does that not actually challenge the very notion of freedom? If, if I have to do what I should do, in what sense is that being free? So is freedom being able to do what we want? Is freedom being able to do what we should? Or is there more to it? In John chapter 8, the Lord Jesus is talking to some of his new followers. Uh, they are converts here wanting to follow his teachings as a rabbi. And they're very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament laws. And in one conversation, Jesus said to his followers, presumably including the, the disciples, but others that were sort of grouping around them, he said, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That little expression, free indeed, is a beautiful expression that we should dig into and understand a little bit today. What was the context of what Jesus was saying? Here's the short passage from John chapter 8. Jesus said, And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. I won't dwell on that today very much, except to say that truth is at the core of freedom. If there's ever to truly be freedom, it needs to be grounded in truth. We're going to spend a, a whole Sunday talking about truth. But as I think about um, the Black Lives Matter movement for a moment um, and, and dwell on that, it would seem to me that there, as in any other area of freedom, truth is at, at the heart of the whole issue. What is the truth? And out of the truth, um, what freedom can be discovered? So Jesus puts that on the line and he says the truth will set you free that's a great thing for us to dwell on and in our personal lives in our group lives in our family lives in our uh, towns and villages and in our countries um, the notion of truth setting us free is a very important notion interestingly the thing that has 
been most often spoken about concerning truth over the last several months is the notion of alternative truth. Uh, all of a sudden, we can actually concoct truth, and the relationship between truth and actual facts um, is tenuous at best. And so how can freedom grow out of alternative truth, we, we, might, we might ask. So we'll have a look at that when we, when we get to that subject. But Jesus carried on. Um, they answered him, says John, who's remembering the events. We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? <laughs> That's kind of curious because of all of the people on earth, to declare that they've never been enslaved to anyone is, is a conundrum because they indeed were slaves to Pharaoh. They were slaves in Egypt. And a, a great number of the celebrations of Judaism come from their memory of being enslaved. And they have been enslaved in various other forms and ways. But Jesus went on and he said, well, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So he turns it from um, human slavery, and he turns it into a, a moral, ethical kind of a, a subject, and says it's, it's about the question of sin. And everyone who commits sin is actually the slave of sin. So he, he says what you're not even recognizing is that you all sin and if you sin you're actually a slave of sin so you are enslaved you are not free and so you will need to learn the truth that I have brought to you so that you can be set free he says um, the slave does not remain in the house forever the son does remain forever so if the son makes you free you will be free indeed. If the sun makes you free, you will be, and there's that lovely expression, you will be free indeed. Humankind longs for freedom. Uh, how we caricature freedom would vary. Uh, what gives occasion for freedom will change from place to place, from time to time. But common to all of us is this notion that freedom is a longing, just like beauty is a longing, just like justice is a longing. Freedom is something that we long for, especially in those pockets of society or those uh, peoples or those periods of time in which freedom was very, very elusive, if at all attainable where it was not up to you at all um, to do either what you wanted to do or even should do because you were enslaved to someone. And Jesus says, you're not even noticing this, that actually all of you are enslaved. All of you need to be set free. And if the Son makes you free, he says, you will be free indeed. I want to take you on what we will call a Pharisee's journey to freedom as we explore the New Testament a little bit. I, I won't go to the, the passage because it's very, very long, but I commend to you Romans 6, 7, and 8 as a long story about a Pharisee's journey to freedom. The Pharisee is Paul. He was Saul at that point, 
when Paul is telling about his testimony, he says that he was actually a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the best of Pharisees, the best kind of Pharisee. In every way, he felt as though er, ethically and morally he he was responsible. He was he was he was he was an example. And yet he says he has come to a place where he has to throw away his credentials. And he will tell us that he actually has been set free by the Son. The Son has set him free, and Paul, as he became known, actually was someone that characterized this notion of being free indeed by being free in the Son. Let, let me remind you of the Pharisees' journey to freedom. Um, we'll talk about it in, in three short chapters. The first is the chapter uh, that we might call the Pharisees' Dilemma. Paul's dilemma, as he articulates it in, in this little section of Romans, is that in his head, he was completely in agreement with the law. He, he totally subscribed to the law and, and believed that what it stipulated was incumbent upon every good religious person, and particularly every good Pharisee. And yet Paul says, while I agreed with the law, I had this dilemma. My head said yes, but my feet said no, or my heart said no. I agreed with the law, and yet I couldn't obey the law. I, I couldn't do what it required. So he actually comes to the place in the passage by saying, I'm a wretch. Who is going to set me free from this awful predicament of not being able to do what I agree I should do. There is in that no experience of freedom because he is trapped by something or someone. Um, Jesus would say that Saul was actually uh, prone to the same dilemma that all of us are, and that is that we are slaves to sin. We sin. Paul said, in my head I agreed with what I should do or not do, for example, I agreed in my head that you shouldn't covet. He, he would understand that. He would understand about the value of property, about the, the value of ownership, about um, the value of a neighbor having the rights to ownership, to property, and so on. And, and so Paul says, probably as Saul, um, I agreed with the law you shouldn't covet, but in my heart... Um, there was covetousness that would spring up over and over and over again. So I'm a wretched man because what I know in my head I should do, I can't. I agree with the law, but I can't keep it. I am a wretched man. Who's going to set me free? The second part of this story or the second chapter in the story we might call the Pharisee's Discovery. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul, having um, gone through the litany of, of his dilemma, says, but for those who walk according to the Spirit, there's no condemnation. Now, he had been condemned. He, he condemned himself in the midst of his, of his dilemma and said, I'm a wretch because I can't do what I want to do and what I know I should do. So who's going to set me free? 
His answer is that it's in the law of freedom in Christ Jesus that he's been set free as a person who now walks in the spirit. And how Paul has come to understand that is by having met Jesus himself and having been afforded all of the privileges that come with the new covenant, the things that Israel hoped for, now Paul, as a convert, as a follower of Jesus, has discovered to be true. And he, in Romans chapter 8, is delighted with having been set free from the dilemma and having been born into what he calls the spirit of adoption. So he says, we who are walking by the spirit um, are, are people who are not now enslaved again, um, but we have become the sons of God. We have been, we've been given not the spirit of fear, but the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship, by which, Paul says, we, we cry out, Abba, Father. In there is the genius of the solution to Paul's dilemma, that what he has discovered is that Jesus has done something that sets him free from the law of sin and death, from his inability to do what is right or to be what is right, to do what is good, even to do what he wants to do and knows would be an ought for him. He's been set free from the things that have tyrannized him and he's discovered that by being related to God as his father, something new has happened. He's not bound by a spirit of slavery. He's not bound by a spirit of fear, but he now is living into the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship. And he says, out of this spirit, he now cries, Abba, Father. As we deliberate on what Paul understands, we would find that um, slavery to sin is being a slave to an old master and the solution to the slavery, the freedom from the slavery is to actually meet a new master. Except the new master is not the tyrant that the old one was. The new master in fact is God himself and he presents himself to us not as a taskmaster, not as a list keeper, not as a box checker, but as someone who says, I am your father. In fact, I am your Abba father. Abba is the Aramaic word that a little child would call its daddy. It's the most endearing term that the child can, can actually utter. One of the first sounds that the child is able to articulate, Abba. And Paul says, the genius of what has happened to me, the, the genius of this discovery, is that I have been set free into a relationship with God that is not a relationship of law, it's a relationship of sonship. And so I say, Abba, Father. I pray to God, my Father, and I call him Abba. And I find that my heart is entirely different. That's, of course, what the, the new covenant was promising. At the end of the experiment, as we might call it, of the old covenant, God sizes it up and says it failed. No, no not the covenant, but you. Um, the covenant is good. The law is good. But your hearts are bad. 
And so God says, what I'm going to do is a new thing. I'm going to do a new thing for the sake of my name, of my reputation. Here's what it will be. I will forgive your sins, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit in you. Paul then explores that by saying, wow, this spirit that God has placed in us is not a spirit of fear. It is the spirit of adoption. And there is the incredible core of the new covenant that what God has done is that he has taken out these old hearts that need to be fixed and he has given us a transplant. He has given us new hearts and these new hearts are hearts that know God not as a lawgiver but they know God as their father and they call him Abba. And Paul says that has been a delightful discovery for me that I now know the spirit of adoption. And so the third thing that would be the chapter title of this uh, journey to freedom of the Pharisee would be the Pharisee's delight that he has found the spirit of life and he now lives not with the conundrum of how to live morally and ethically right but he lives with the delight of walking with God as his father and he would call that freedom who's going to set me free He says, I'll tell you who's going to set me free. Christ is, the Spirit is, the Father is, and I will live in the delight of knowing God. So Paul says all of the things that were my credentials, all of the reasons that I might say I have the right to brag, they don't count for anything because they didn't work. All of my qualifications, all of my education, all of my disciplines, all all of the right things that I did, They didn't work. But now knowing Christ has brought me into a relationship with the Father, whereby I call him Abba. And Jesus, if he were listening to him, as of course he would have been from wherever, would would be saying to Paul, because you've discovered um, that whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. We still hold on to that incredible truth that the only freedom that there is from the tyranny of sin, from the mastery of sin, from what we in, in our pathetic human ways might even consider freedom, feeling as though we ought to be free to do whatever we choose to do. We have been set free from even those notions, and we say, that was not freedom at all. In fact, that was bondage. That was slavery of the worst kind. Because if I were honest about myself, the things that I think I want to do or I wanted to do, the things that gave me pleasure, the things that gave me fulfillment, they only led me into more bondage. And they only tightened the ropes around me. And so I have been set free even from what I thought I wanted into something that actually is more truly who I am and what I honestly want. Is freedom the ability to do what we want? Is freedom the ability to do what we ought? Here's what I want to propose to you today, and this is really the the sum total of, of this talk. True freedom is found 
when what we want to be and do and what we ought to be and do are one and the same. Let me read it to you again and you'll see it on the screen. True freedom is found when what we want to be and do and what we ought to be and do are one and the same. That is a delightful discovery that actually at, at the core of our beings, we do not want to sin. We, we do not want to break the law. And, and Paul says, I get that as Saul, I did not want to break the law. I just didn't know how to not break the law. In fact, many of us would say, I actually thought I wanted to break the law. I thought that the things that I wanted when they were contrary to the law um, would give me an opportunity to criticize the law and say that the law was, you know, um, just out of date. It was anachronistic to the extreme. It was something that belonged in Victorian England or it belonged in some old religious ways. And so we try to sort of reconstruct morality and we have a new morality. We have things that we want to to embrace and say are good and true the bible in the prophets actually speaks to that and says that's what you're like you call good or you call what's bad good or evil good and what's good you call evil it's you you've got things all upside down and yet here we are um you know insisting that we want freedom but our very notion of freedom is corrupt. Our very notion of what we think we want is is totally wanting. And when we go to the second level and ask about doing what we ought, my goodness, we're, we're even in a greater dilemma. We're, we're caught by the fact that the things that we agree we ought to do, we don't have the ability. We, we know we ought to love one another. We know we ought not to express hatred towards one another. We, we know that we, we shouldn't um, be marked by the various ways that we've been marked in, in, in failing our fellow human beings. Um, but we don't know how to get out of it. We, we don't know where freedom is. We don't know how to have freedom apart from um, human attempts at freedom and um, human re reworking, rescaling, reinterpreting, revisiting, um, calling the past and its failure forward. Um, we're, we're in the dilemma where we seem to be shouting freedom, freedom. We must have freedom, and yet Jesus says y you don't understand what freedom is, and He would bring us through the incredible story of His work to give us true freedom that would actually lead us into the truth that he had referred to. That when we live in truth, we're able to discover freedom. And we actually have an ability for that freedom that comes by what Jesus has done by the Spirit in a relationship with the Father, whereby we say, Abba, Father, and we agree with the law, and we practice the law, and the oughts of our lives, the odds of our relationships become very possible, in fact, more than possible. They become true to who we actually are. 
Paul in Corinthians says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That new that has come is the new heart of the new covenant. And the old that is gone is the tyranny of sin that has led us into incredible, complex um, disorganization of the way that we live our lives as individuals, as families, as societies, as peoples. And we need freedom. We need to be set free. Well, what is freedom? True freedom is found. Found. When what we want to be and do and what we ought to be and do are one and the same. Imagine that your immediate inclination when you face an opportunity and perhaps it calls to the old nature, it calls to the sinful you. Imagine the delight of being able to say, I, I, I not only ought not to do that, but I don't want to do that sexual temptation or some other kind of temptation or or wrong opportunity i look at it and say yeah i I notice that and i know i ought not but guess what i actually don't want to do that because my nature has changed truth has enlightened in in the fullest sense of that term my mind and my heart to all of the circumstances around me and all of the circumstances around us that have been and that are and that will be. True freedom. What I want to do and what I ought to do, they're the same thing because of what has happened to me through Jesus. I love the story of the ugly duckling. I love nursery tales. They've always got great... um, morals for us and and the story of the ugly duckling has a few different forms but my favorite one is that this duckling grew up on the uh, the barnyard and spent its life doing the things that ducklings do in the barnyard and it it noticed every day that while it plodded around in the dirt and pecked away for whatever it could find in in the straw and things that the farmer would would supply to his ducks. Uh, It would look in the sky and see these graceful birds that would fly over. They were white and they were glistening in, in the sun and they would fly over almost as though to taunt the duckling because the duckling knew it could never fly like that. It could never soar like that. It could never be graceful like that. If it had a mirror to look into on the barnyard, it would expect to find in the mirror the reflection of an ugly duckling. So desperate became the the ugly duckling's plight that one day it decided that no matter what the cost, it would join those beautiful birds. They were swans. And he assumed that the swans would reject him because he, by nature, was not like them. And he had no freedom as he saw them experience. He noticed that they had flown out onto a lake and that they were 
they were swimming on the surface of the lake. And so he, he paddled out on the lake so that he could get to where the swans were. He didn't think they would accept him. He didn't think they would do anything other than perhaps kill him. But he was so desperate and he was so drawn to their beauty that he made his way out to the swans. When he arrived where the swans were, to his amazement, they not only didn't reject him or hurt him or kill him, but they welcomed him into their group, whatever a group of swans is called. And the one version of the story says that as this was happening, the swan looked at its reflection in the surface of the lake and discovered that it was not an ugly duckling, it was a swan. That what it had thought all of this time wasn't the truth ab about its nature. One of the greatest, or greatest discoveries that we can have as, as human beings is that by the truth that has been brought to us by Christ, by the freedom that has been brought to us by Christ, we are not what we thought we were we, we are not anymore what we actually used to be. And if we can see ourselves in the mirror of God's word, if we can see ourselves in the mirror of God's affirming, loving touch on us, we would discover that we don't want to do the things that we used to be tyrannized by. Not only should we not ought to do them, but we also don't want to do. We find that what we want to do and what we ought to do have become one and the same. Jesus would tell us that that is freedom. The kite would admit to us that that is freedom. You see, the kite was never designed to be autonomous. And, and there's kind of a hard news item for, for Western North Americans. We were never designed to be morally free as we might characterize that. We were never designed to do whatever we want. We were designed to do what we should and we were designed to want to do what we should, all one and the same. The kite master is the key to the whole story. The kite is most glorious. It is most free when it is flying in the clouds under the control of a kite master. It was never designed to fly by itself, nor are we designed to live in a way that is independent from our maker. Our maker knows why he made us how he did. And our maker knows that freedom is submitting to his good will, his good ways, his good wisdom, and living in such a way that we discover that we actually want those things that before we just admitted were oughts, and now we say they are one and the same.